Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode, we're going to focus on a topic we often get asked to speak with boards of directors and association staff about, and that's the general landscape for lifelong learning. Before we do that, we want to be sure to highlight our annual Leading Learning Symposium, an event designed specifically for senior leaders at organizations in the business of lifelong learning, continuing education, and professional development. The symposium will take place this year on October 24th and 25th in Baltimore, and we already have a great group coming together for it. To find out what the symposium is all about and to see the great things that last year's attendees had to say about it, visit the event website at symposium.leadinglearning.com. We also want to thank WebCourseWorks, makers of the Course Stage Learning Management System, for being the sponsor for this episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. You can find out more about WebCourseWorks at webcourseworks.com. So now let's talk a bit about this topic of the learning landscape. Yeah, so like you said, this is something uh, we we get asked to, to talk about um, quite a bit, and, and we've written about it here and there. We often refer to the uh, new learning landscape when we're writing about lifelong learning, but uh, we realized we'd never actually kind of address that topic here on the podcast, and it certainly seems like a, an appropriate topic to uh, devote a little bit of time to, because it really, I mean, it sets the context for everything we're doing here on this podcast um, and really everything that our listeners are, are doing in their day-to-day work. So, you know, we thought um, we, we have a number of ways of coming at it, but uh, for purposes of uh, uh, this discussion here today, um, we really want to focus in on what we see as two really major shifts and then a gap in, in, the, in the market for lifelong learning and in, in the, just the general lifelong learning landscape. And so let's start first with uh, the economic shift. Because um, there's been a, a lot of changes in, in the nature of work. I mean, uh, a lot of people who came from families where perhaps a, a parent, um, you know, started a career and ended that same career at the same company. That seems to be uh, the days of the past. Long, long gone. Yes, yeah. M- most people at this point, you know, are, are switching uh, jobs ten, 10 times or more uh, on average. Uh, that that figure's actually probably gone up since the last time uh, I did research. But we're seeing, you know, this just kind of permanent undercurrent of uh, insecurity in the job market. Uh, you know, jobs are being outsourced; they're being offshored. Uh, we're starting to see more and more people. I, I'm, 
for better or worse, replaced by machines in, in, in different ways, whether that's a artificial intelligence or whether it's a robot. That's going to become more and more common. We've actually identified that as you know one of the, the big trends uh, that um, that we're tracking. So, I mean, it, things are really uh, just changing rapidly in just the, the overall nature of, of work out there. And so on top of that, where you have sort of a an economy where it's more likely to change jobs more often or to maybe even rather than having full-time employment, maybe you're a freelancer. Yeah, tons of freelancers now. Uh, we, we, roughly a third of their workforce, according to some statistics, are, are, are freelancers. So yeah, it's a huge, uh, a huge change there. And on top of all that, we also now have the fact that we're working much longer than we once did. Yeah, I mean, you know, it used to be you, you, you start work um, when you're, you know, in your early 20s and uh, you're hoping to, to retire um, by, by 65. But, uh, I mean, these days you're, you're lucky if you're going to be able to retire at all, certainly by age 65. I mean, really, most of us are looking at uh, what we characterize as the other 50 years out there. So that time after you've finished uh, whatever higher education uh, you're going to uh, take part in, you've got that other 50 years in front of you. And the nature of that 50 years, again, has changed rapidly. We've just talked about you know, how the, the job market is different, um, how people are, are changing jobs uh, more rapidly. If you're a freelancer, for example, um, you know, and you said a third of the economy freelancers, which just, that just blows my, my mind that that's the case. That's 54 million people and, and that doesn't even include people who are working in small businesses. None of those people really have sort of the corporate training department backing them up. Um, they've got to get out there. And during that, that other 50 years that we're talking about um, while they're continuing to work, they've got to retool. They've got to keep learning. Um, so the, this, the, the demand, uh, the need now for lifelong learning on a continual basis is just much, much higher than, than it's ever been in the past. Yeah, and I, one thing I'll, I'll say before we dive into kind of how people are approaching um, their, their learning in the, that other 50 years is the fact that that 50 years may turn out to be a, a conservative estimate. I mean, lifespan is also increasing. And so on top of all of this um, change and just the fact that we already sort of were looking at a 50 years, you know, as lifespans get longer, which they seem to be, you know, on the rise uh, globally and certainly in um, kind of more developed countries than, you know, you're going to have a, even more years in front of you in which you may need to be working and whether or not you're working certainly probably want to be learning new things. Yeah, it's going to be the other 75 years before we know it. I think if I, if I recall the, the, the stat correctly, over the course of something like the last 100 years, uh, average lifespan globally has increased by like 36 years. I mean, something huge um, like that. And of course, now as we're getting into you know a whole new era of health and medicine, like you're saying, it could easily be the other 75 years, the other 100 years be before we uh, e even know it. And so when we think about how folks are approaching the learning that they need to do, you know, once they leave higher education in that other 50 or as it may turn out to be 75 years, you know, let's talk about who it is that's providing learning in that space. Um, you know, there are trade and professional associations that are doing that. Dead, yeah, definitely. You know, they've always been a, a big part of it, but there, you know, plenty of other organizations get get involved here. I mean, it's always been kind of a a fragmented market, you know, so you've got your corporate training and development uh, departments that are supporting people who are in a situation that to have that kind of support. Um, but then you've got, you know, community workforce development and, and education type initiatives. You've got college and university continuing yet, and, and a lot's been happening there in terms of uh, those institutions realizing now that, you know, there's the opportunity for certificate programs and in other types of lifelong learning that are, that are starting to turn into to, to big business. But in general, I mean, there's always been a, a pretty fragmented market and uh, 
hasn't ever been defined or focused on in the way that, say, you know, K through 12 or higher education has been. And, you know, I, I think we would argue that none of these uh, entities really quite have it figured out yet. Yeah, and so I think what we tend to see as um, the overarching theme of this other 50 years is it's the do-it-yourself learning where you sort of have to figure out what it is you need to do, um, what you need to learn, and then you figure out what the options are um, for, for pursuing that. And so you may be drawing on a variety of different resources that we just talked about. It might be the association, it might be something at a, a continuing ed program at a university, but you kind of mix and match. It might even be YouTube videos, you know, and much more informal learning um, there. And so there's a lot of, um, I think, fragmentation and can kind of confusion with a lot sort of, of the onus put on the learner in terms of, you know, where is she going to turn to learn what she needs to learn? Yeah, definitely a lot of opportunity, but also, you know, a lot of, a lot of challenge if you are trying to take care of your lifelong learning. And not surprisingly, um, there's starting to be a, a lot of commercial interest, a lot of entrepreneurial interest in yeah, the, the education market in general. Um, you know, the, there's always been a lot of in, investment there. Um, but now in this more lifelong learning market, I mean, we're starting to see something akin to the the boom that we experienced in the mid-90s when you and I both got involved with uh, with education, with the market for education and, and online learning, where we, you know, had the, the big bubble that uh, eventually burst. But, um, you know, at this point, there seems to be a lot more basis for the the, the type of investment um, that's going in, into education. So we are starting to to, to see a boom in, um, in this other 50 years in, in the market there. And, you know, and it's always been our, our bias, and I don't think it's one we're going to back off of anytime soon, that uh, the trade and professional associations, who are the first group you mentioned, are, are really particularly well positioned to serve this other 50 years. And it's because, you know, people will switch jobs a lot. They're going to switch careers a lot less. I mean, people do still switch careers. But, you know, if you can get somebody at the beginning of a career, and if you can help them, you know, see that as a compelling career that is worth them sticking with over time, um, as an association, you're probably going to have the the longest uh, and most touch points um, with that person out of any other potential provider. You know, their, their university or college, uh, assuming they went to one, yeah, they'll stay in touch. And, and I think uh, institutions are getting more savvy about their their alumni programs and, and maybe doing some continuing ed through that. But really, from a career standpoint, that association is a continuing touch point. They'll they'll go to different employers to the extent that they have the you know the corporate education and training. That'll kind of come and go. Um, and even the commercial providers that they access. So I think there's a there's a tremendous opportunity for trade and professional associations here if they can step up and really, you know, kind of create that that value story for the career and be sort of the stewards of that value story for the, the people that they're serving in their field or industry. And so maybe we should talk now about the second shift that we see. Yeah, definitely, because we, we've been talking about um, uh, you know learners here and sort of the challenges uh, that they have. Um, we're going to, you know, I think, in, in this part, talk a little bit about uh, the, the opportunity um, that that represents um, for them and for other groups uh, within this learning landscape, because the, the second shift is really a power shift um, that we're seeing. I mean, traditionally, you know, we've had educational institutions and we've had teachers, and when we've thought about learning, we've take, typically thought about education, and the power has really resti- resided with those those institutions, the, the, you know, the colleges, the universities, the departments of, of training, and with the teachers who are delivering the instruction. Um, but um, we're seeing a, a definite uh, shift away from that more formal power structure, and we're seeing power shift to, uh, you know, 
teachers in a different way, these sort of more entrepreneurial subject matter experts that now have new opportunities that they didn't have before. Um, we're seeing it shift towards uh, organizations or companies that are able to make a market um, in, the, uh, in, the, in the world of lifelong learning. And then we are seeing power shift to, to learners themselves. That's right. Again, I think technology is playing a big role here in terms of what um, is just possible now. More power going to the learners just because it's so much easier to uh, discover and uncover the various choices that you have as a learner now. Yeah, and, and you know, and expectations uh, are, are shifting. So learners can can make demands that they could not make before because they are able to you know connect and communicate. Um, they've they've got you know the, the social networks that they're leveraging. They've got the search engines that allow them to find the learning opportunities. So you know if they're not satisfied with you. And uh, what your organization or your company or your institution are providing, um, you know, the capabilities that they now have for going somewhere else, and um, you know, and, and as the Khan Academy has been promoting lately, to to really be able to learn anything, um, that that power is now with learners. Now, learners, I think, you know, need to. to learn to capitalize on that and take advantage of that. We've talked a lot about how a lot of people maybe aren't as prepared for that um, as they could be, um, maybe aren't as, as, as tuned into what the possibilities are. And I think we should talk about that a little bit uh, uh, here as well. But nonetheless, you know, the, the opportunity for, for power is there and many learners are now exercising that power uh, out, out in the marketplace. One thing I know I would love for you to say a little bit more about is, is a concept that you mentioned in the context of learning technology design, the event that we held um, in May in Arlington, where you talked about the idea of a personal learning inventory. Yeah, I mean, you know, so when I look at uh, my own learning, and this was kind of the, the basis for the comments there, um, just the 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 wealth of things that I now access for learning purposes, and very few of them are the kind of formal course experiences that we all tend to associate with learning. That's really, you know, education. That's the more formal aspect uh, of learning. But, uh, you know, I read tons of blogs. Uh, I, I use Feedly as a, as, a, as a blog reader to tag things and search things and categorize things. I use discussion groups. You know, I watch videos of all sorts. And uh, I started, you know, just throwing images up of all the different things that, uh, that I access. And it filled up a screen very quickly. And I wasn't even, you know, half done. In fact, maybe we can throw that uh, image up as, as part of the show notes here. Um, but I think all of us, we may not even be conscious conscious of the fact that we have that, but just the fact that we have Google as a search engine, you know, and then what we tend, what the, what that tends to lead us to in terms of the content um, we're accessing, and, and often we're doing that in a very active and applied way. It's actually better for learning than, you know, a lot of what we might experience in, in the classroom. So again, just a tremendous amount of power that the, that the learner has now. Right, because it's a, this type of approach to learning is very much built on solving uh, a current need or problem, and so that we know that that makes for better learning because the learner's deeply invested in it. Definitely, definitely. Connecting it straight into work. And, and, I, and I mean, and they're finding, you know, no shortage of sources. I, I've already mentioned search engines and, and everything that you can find out there. But often what you're going to find on the other end of a search engine is going to be, for example, um, you know, a subject matter expert uh, who's decided, hey, you know, I can, I can take advantage of these uh, new technologies. And these are not your traditional institutional teachers. These are people, you know, who are maybe breaking outside of the system a little bit, maybe breaking outside of the conferences and events, you know, that uh, uh, a lot of our audience holds and, and relies on subject matter experts for. But there's starting to be companies out there, a long list of them, um, and we, we track some of these uh, that, um, you know, provide the tools 
and, and they provide good support to subject matter experts for getting their content online and, and publishing it uh, quite easily and, and, you know, in a very, uh, you know, uh, high caliber um, fashion. So that, that's, that's a new power that the experts have. And I mean, we really are sort of living in an age of experts, I guess, the, the opportunities that you have if you've got subject matter expertise. Right. And this, we, we, talk about the concept of the entrepreneurial subject matter expert so the, or the ESME for, for short. And, and that's exactly what um, this climate is ripe for right now, which is the entrepreneurial subject matter expert has so many choices out there. So she doesn't have to go um, to the her association. She doesn't have to go to the local chamber of commerce and, and need to look for avenues to get her message out there. Um, she now has a, a range of other uh, options, as you said. So things like Udemy or Degreed or Open Sesame, some of these types of resources and sites that now can put those experts out in front of learners. Yeah. And these are what we characterize as um, market makers, uh, basically. So these are companies that they're providing the tools for experts to um, create and publish content, but they're also providing, you know, the e-commerce engine, the marketing support, um, basically, you know, the, the whole market that these experts need to get their stuff out there. So they're really leveraging subject matter experts to create big catalogs themselves that they're going to then be able to, you know, extend uh, into, um, you know, corporations and other institutions that want to license that content. So, I mean, you know, overall, we've got this shift to to learners that we talked about, that power. We've got the shift to entre entrepreneurial subject matter experts or subject matter entrepreneurs, um, we sometimes call them. And then we've got the shift in, in, in power to the companies that, uh, and organizations that are really able to leverage that as market makers. And, and all of this uh, really kind of, you know, to use that old dot-com term, disintermediates uh, the, the traditional providers of learning and education. So that's a huge shift, that, that power shift, along with the economic shift uh, that we that uh, we talked about. So those are those are our two big shifts in the the learning landscape. And so when there are major shifts like the economic shift and the power shift that we've just talked about, um, there's disruption, but there's also a lot of opportunity. So the third thing we wanted to talk about is is really kind of a, a gap um, and a leadership gap. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're obviously seeing a lot of very forward-thinking people out there in organizations of all different types who realize what's going on, who are really trying to kind of lead the way. You know, I think of somebody like Salman Khan in particular and what he's done with Khan Academy. I mean, this is somebody who has tremendous vision, uh, is providing tremendous leadership um, in this sort of new learning landscape. But, um, you know, across the board, we're not necessarily seeing that kind of uh, leadership. And, and we know, you know, from particularly for some of the, the, the recent statistics uh, that, that, that we've looked at from places like um, uh, the, the Pew Research Center, that there's a, there's a need for leadership out there to help connect the dots. Well, right, to take that example of the Pew Research Center, um, they have a, a report that came out a, a few months ago called Lifelong Learning and Technology. And I think one of the interesting takeaways from that report for for us was the just the fact of how unfamiliar uh, adult Americans are with some some terms that I just think of as kind of old hat at this point everything from uh, well Khan Academy because you just mentioned Salman Khan yeah I don't know what that is they, yeah. you know very few knew I think only nine percent were very familiar with that um, and 69 percent were not at all familiar MOOCs um, 
people were 67% of, of respondents, and this was a very in-depth um, representative survey of adult Americans, 67% of Americans didn't know what MOOCs were. Um, digital badges, 69% didn't weren't familiar with those. And then even if you go back to a, a term like distance education, 49% weren't familiar with with what that is. I mean, yeah, so that, I, yeah that kind of blew my mind. That it, it, you know, because we take it for granted that uh, the distance education, distance learning um, is, an, is an accepted phenomenon. And in many ways it is, you know, depending on the, the, the segments of the population you're, you're dealing with. But obviously, there's still a, a huge segment out there that is not tuned into this uh, as an opportunity and needs people to, to lead the way. And so I just find it very interesting when we think about there, there's that big a group of, of uh, adult Americans who don't know anything about some of these uh, recent changes and, um, and new approaches to learning. And, and so it, it made us sort of stop and ask the question of, well, why? Why, why don't more Americans know about this? Yeah, yeah, and you know, and, and we sort of identify this as a bit of a, I guess, a smoking gun um, at the uh, at uh, LTD. I mean, we were obviously um, focusing on a, a trade and professional association audience at that event, and that's a lot of the audience that's listening to this podcast. And you know, our research shows that when it comes to some of these new learning opportunities, um, that associations are to a large degree missing in action. Yeah, I mean, so we have um, research that we've done in our Association Learning Plus Technology Report, which draws on uh, an online survey that we do of of membership organizations. Um, you know, we can see things that just very few are actually actively doing anything with um, flipped classrooms. We have like 14.4% of, of respondents were doing anything with, with those, or digital badges was under 10%. Uh, gamification under 10%, MOOCs uh, a little over 6%. And and kind of, we, we asked about some of these emerging trends along with more um, established modes of, of learning just because we were curious to know what was starting to take root, what um, these organizations are starting to do do work with, and uh, micro-learning turned out to be kind of the most popular, but even that uh, was only being offered by under um, a fifth, so less than 20% of, um, of respondents were doing that. So for us, that sort of said, you know, that's got to be connected to why so many Americans aren't aware of these types of, of new technologies and new approaches to learning, because if we think back to that, again, the, the 50 years, um, the other 50 years where uh, trade and professional associations can be playing a role. If they're not talking about these kinds of ideas, if they're not offering these kinds of ideas, well, then where else will you know the these Americans be be hearing about it? Yeah, because it's going to be one of the most you know common sources. We we and we know we've talked about you know, people having search engines and online available to them, which certainly people are taking advantage of. But we also know, you know, that people still like to go to uh, live place-based uh, events. They're still going to be going to events and conferences and things that uh, trade and professional associations uh, are offering. And if they're not, you know, hearing about these new opportunities, seeing these new opportunities um, at, at those events and, you know, as a, as a offshoot from these events, then, you know, the, the, they may miss them entirely. And I think, you know, the, the fact that... Um, the percentages are so low, you know, suggest that, um, A, that there's there's not a lot of risk um, being taken, there's not a lot of stuff being tried out, and, and, and for us, that tends to point to there not being enough leadership authority and or, and or leadership vision there to help drive uh, those kinds of activities forward. You know, and we, we've looked at things, uh, for instance, you know, like... Uh, 
do organizations have um, chief learning officers? Do they have somebody, not necessarily with that title, but uh, at the executive level in their organization, um, is there somebody with, that, with an executive title who's really in charge of driving forward um, the, the, the learning function of those organizations? And, uh, and, and so far, you know, well under half uh, have any, any sort of uh, person in that, in that role or with that title. Yeah, and while in some ways it's heartening because it, it it is under half, but it's also it's around forty two percent, which is in some ways very heartening um, to see that. But then again, if you step back to think through um, the mission and the reason why so many um, trade and professional associations exist in the first place, one of those reasons usually being education. I mean, it's usually right right there in the mission statement. You can go to nine out of ten associations, you know, about us page where they've got the mission and vision and, you know, everything that needs to be put up on those pages. And you will almost always see learning, education, knowledge, something of, of that nature in the mission of the organization. And so while you might be able to argue or that 42% is relatively high, you know, also in the context of organizations that have uh, a mission that involves education, that's maybe arguably low. <laughs> it, it, it feels low to me, but, uh, you, know, you know, my bias on, on these things. Um, but, but, you know, that's, uh, we don't want to sort of end on a negative note here. I mean, that, that represents a big opportunity, I think, for um, organizational leaders at, you know, at the, at the top, at the CEO and the board level to be thinking about, okay, what, what do we do about this? How do we get the talent into the organizations that can provide the leadership that's needed here? You know, we talked about those, uh, those two big shifts, the economic shift, the power shift. Those aren't going away. I mean, I think those are going to, ter- to determine uh, to a large extent what's going to happen in this market for lifelong learning in this new learning landscape for the coming five to ten years. You know, so now is the time to, to start thinking about uh, what would our leadership look like for this? How do we start really developing um, the, the talent uh, to address both the challenges and the opportunities that these, uh, these shifts represent? So that's you know that's our take on the 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 new learning landscape, and I'm I'm sure it will be an evolving one. But uh, hopefully that's some some good food for thought for uh, for so listeners. Your, your takeaway is lots of opportunity. Lots of opportunity. <laughs> tons of opportunity out there. One way to capitalize on that opportunity and to, to bone up on uh, your own ability or the, the right person's ability to lead learning within uh, your organization, of course, is to go to an event that uh, you can tell by its very name is all about leading learning because it is the leading learning symposium that uh, you talked about at the beginning of the podcast. And as we're exiting, yeah, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it uh, one more time. Uh, we'll be doing that in, in Baltimore uh, at the end of October. You can find out more about the leading learning symposium at symposium.leadinglearning.com. And thanks again to WebCourseWorks for sponsoring this podcast episode. And I know the folks at WebCourseWorks are very tuned in to this kind of uh, conversation, uh, very very sympathetic to what we're talking about here. So definitely check out uh, WebCourseWorks at webcourseworks.com. Uh, while you're out there on the web checking things out, make sure you go and, and check out the, the show notes uh, for this episode. We do have notes that go along with every podcast episode uh, that we do. It has uh, not a full transcript, but basically goes through the, the major points of the podcast, anything we reference during the podcast. Uh, for instance, in this one, we referenced the, the Pew Research Research. Uh, we'll have a link to that, uh, among other things, in the show notes. And you can get those at leadinglearning.com slash episode 38. 
And while you're there, you will see options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you aren't already subscribed to the podcast, we would be grateful if you would take a minute to subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And we would also be grateful if you would give us a rating on iTunes. Um, you can get there easily just by going to leadinglearning.com forward slash iTunes. And this is the type of thing that people hear and they're like, yeah, that sounds good. I enjoy this. But you know, somebody else will get over there and, and rate the program. That'll be a good thing. But no, it doesn't happen. It has to be you. You have to take action and get over there to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes and quickly leave us a rating, quick review. Helps people find the podcast helps us feel good about what we're doing. We also would appreciate it if you would tell others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, you can pick another social network of your choice and spread the word that way. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Podcast.